0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at Thoughtbot about developing great software. I'm Joelle Kenville, and today I'm joined with a guest, Daniel Nolan. Hey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Daniel, what's new in your world?
1: So, recently I just picked up a dirt jumper bicycle, and I've been learning to get better at dirt jumping. I ride mountain bikes quite a bit, but Jumping is something that I haven't been super comfortable with.
0: What is dirt jumping?
1: So dirt jumping is kind of like more like a BMX style riding with the really huge dirt jumps. If you do it right, you don't pedal. So you should be jumping and pumping and making your way around the track or the course without the need to pedal. So it's actually pretty interesting. And it's supposed to level up your mountain bike skills if you get good at this.
0: So the idea is you start up high somewhere and you just kind of let the gravity bring you down?
1: Yep, that's the idea. So you start up on a platform, usually you drop in, and then from there you start the series of jumps or rollers, pick up speed, and then kind of go into some bigger jumps and berms and stuff and make your way around the course. It's pretty fun.
0: So you're you're coming down from a high, and then you hit a dirt ramp somewhere, you go up in the air, you fly off, and you're doing like a flip or something like that?
1: yeah not quite there yet some of the people i ride with can do flips and no handers and stuff definitely not there but just getting comfortable on big dirt jumps i think the the scariest thing is not being able to see the landing so it's like Mm. if it's just a little if it's just a little jump like you know where you're going but if it's like one of those big jumps with a huge lip you just have no idea what's on the other side and no matter how you know even if you've hit it 10 times it's still scary because you can't see it
0: how do you land safely when you can't see your landing place
1: There's a technique where you kind of, you push the bike down. So like once you're in the air and you're kind of leveled the bike out and you spot the landing, you force the bike down to kind of accentuate that movement and make the bike go down.
0: Just so I get a better mental picture here. How high up are we talking about when you're like flying off this ramp?
1: Uh, so some of these dirt jumps are probably, uh, on the ones that I'm riding, the lips are probably like, you know, eight, nine feet high. And, uh, you're probably getting like three to four feet in the air over that to clear it.
0: Wow. That's a little bit of elevation right there. Yeah. I would probably be scared.
1: The safe jumps have what they call a table on top. So there's no risk. Like if you land on top of the jump, you're not going to die. But yeah, typically they're flat on top. So you have to have enough air and enough momentum to clear that flat part and land on the downside.
0: I like to do a lot of bouldering. In this case, I do it in a gym. So you're climbing up a wall that's maybe 15 feet high. You know, even at that height, I feel a little scared. Not very good with heights. Uh, how do you feel when you're you're up 15, 20 feet on a bicycle and you don't know where you're going to land?
1: It's scary. I mean, just there's no way to to get around it. But that's the whole reason I, I started getting into the dirt jumping is just try to get it to where it's more second nature and, and you're not so terrified.
0: <laughs> kind of pushing some of your personal limits then.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So it sounds like you're introducing a lot of excitement and novelty in your personal life. And that contrasts to a recent conversation that we had where you'd mentioned that at work, it's not the kind of shiny new tech that excites you or even kind of the scary parts, but you find that the boring parts of tech are what are most fulfilling to you.
1: Yeah, I actually really do like diving into the more boring parts. And I think to give just a little history about myself and, and maybe why that might be, I'm a second career programmer. My original career or what I thought was going to be my lifelong career was uh, I was an auto mechanic. So I was a certified VW tech in my early 20s. And I've always kind of had this passion for like why things are. I want to know why something is. So when I dive into something, it's like, I want to know the why. I don't want to just know what the fix is. I want to know why that thing fixes it or whatever. So I find that getting into the more boring parts of programming and especially in the Rails stack, allow me to do this. So that, for example, like a gem that Dependabot can't upgrade and it just sits there. The PR just sits there. Nobody wants to touch it. So then I'm, I come along and I'm like, well, why won't it upgrade? Why can't we upgrade this thing? And I start diving into is there breaking changes? Is there stuff like that? So, Fixing things for me has been something since I was just a little kid. My mom said I always used to take things apart and put them back together. I always want to know the why. Doing some of the more boring stuff, you get to do a lot more of that.
0: Mm, So it sounds like really you're, you're motivated by curiosity pretty strongly.
1: Yeah, for sure. I don't want to just know what a quick fix is or something like that. I want to actually get in. I want to read this, you know, like if, if I, in the example, like a gem that won't upgrade, like I want to go dive into that source code. I want to see what the source code's doing. I want to figure out the why, you know, I don't want to just Google for like, Hey, I can't upgrade this gem. What do you think I should do? So always been super curious. That's how I've been able to sustain in, in software development and not really get burned out. It's what makes me tick.
0: How do you feel about bug fixing or like chasing down bugs in general? Is that something that really scratches that itch?
1: It definitely does. I feel it's, you know, very similar to somebody comes to you and they've got a broken car and they're like, hey, this thing's making this noise when I'm going down the highway at 50 miles an hour. You know, what is it? You know, it's very much the same thing. Like you get an end user and they're like, hey, when I click this button in the browser and, you know... it." this thing doesn't load or you know, I'm getting a 500 error. It's very relatable. I love diving into those type of things. Like I, I love fixing bugs.
0: It's interesting that you related that back to your work with cars because it sounds like you were doing sort of the mechanical version of debugging.
1: Definitely the mechanical version of debugging, but it's still, it's a lot of the same stuff. It's a lot of process of elimination and stuff like that, right? Like you got a noise coming from the front left. It could be anything, you know, it could be the wheel, it could be brakes. It could be, I mean, there's a number of things it could be. So you kind of got to start going down the path of like, you know, well, it's not this and it's not this, and it's not this. And, it's very similar when you have a bug, you know, and you start down the path of like, oh, well, I can click the button. The, the post is getting sent to the server, but for some reason, the, you know, the parameters aren't going past the controller or something like that. So, you know, you maybe go look for some permitted params or something. I don't know. But it, it's very similar as, you know, just going through the process of like checking things off and trying to get to the root cause.
0: Yeah, so when you joined software, you already had this skill kind of really built up pretty well.
1: Yeah, definitely did. Being a mechanic, a lot of times I would get like the problems that nobody else wanted to deal with because people were like, oh, he likes troubleshooting electrical issues and stuff like that so give it to him you know whereas the other mechanics were just you know like we're more like oh i want to rebuild the engine or i want to put a new train like it's visibly needs an engine like oh there's a rod through the side of the block it's leaking oil everywhere okay yeah like versus oh it's got some electrical bug where you know one injector doesn't fire every 50th time or something like that And something that you just really have to like trace down and figure out why it's not happening so i feel like i had a pretty good uh no pun intended, toolbox coming into um, software development uh, as far as um, just uh, problem-solving skills, I guess.
0: It's interesting. A few years ago, I interviewed a bunch of people about debugging and the parts they liked, the parts they didn't like, hopes and fears. And most people I talked to actually enjoyed debugging, except that oftentimes when bugs come up, it's because they're blocking something else and there are time pressures And so all that extra context is what makes debugging stressful for most people that I talk to. But the actual act of debugging, that kind of process of elimination or trying to hunt down the source of a bug, many people I interviewed actually found that highly fulfilling. So it sounds like it taps into a lot of the same interests that you
1: have. That's super interesting. Yeah. And it is fulfilling too, right? Like you go on this hunt and you kind of like you're put on your detective hat and go try to like figure out what the breaking thing is. And then you get the payoff also of like, okay, well, you know, if you actually fix it, you resolved it and you know, you get that, that little bit of payoff. And I think for any job for me to be fulfilling, I have to have that kind of that payoff where you start with something broken you fix it, you know, you start with an empty editor and then you build out a web application or something like this. So it's just like having that payoff is is definitely huge. You know, I just find that that part of software development super fulfilling. So
0: you've mentioned debugging, you've talked a little bit about gnarly gem upgrades, what other types of work fit under that boring part of software heading for you?
1: Putting in some tools for best practices, maybe, you know, like setting up uh, linters and, and stuff like that, automated code review kind of things. It's like, it's stuff that you tend to see like teams and stuff want, but they just never have the time. They're always building, you know, new features and stuff. So I think a lot of that stuff like gets pushed by the wayside. Refactoring code that's good enough. It's good enough and it's working. But it could be a little cleaner, a little easier to read. Kind of enjoy that, too. I don't know. Do you have any things that you would consider uh, boring programming work?
0: I think some types of features sometimes can feel uh, boring. Maybe a little bit beyond boring. It's uh, scary or unpleasant to work on. Sometimes there are just parts of the code that are really gnarly to work with. I'm like, oh no, I've got the ticket that requires touching some of that gnarly code in a particular part of the app. There's one app in particular I'm thinking of that this was the wizard code or the multi-step form processing code that had gotten like really gnarly. And so nobody wanted to touch it. And if you had a ticket that required touching that code, it's like, oh no, you drew the short straw.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had, had experiences like that. I, I, I had a feature uh, I worked on at a previous job where it was uh, the feature was referred to as the black box because nobody knew how it worked nobody knew what it actually did but they knew that it didn't produce the results they wanted and they knew it needed to be refactored so that was definitely one I don't even know if I would say that was boring but definitely a scary part that nobody wants to touch there's just all kinds of stuff that's, that's boring. Like uh, if you're just constantly adding new features and, and doing new things and adding to the app, there's code that's probably not used anymore. So using something like cover band and going in and finding unused code and cleaning out that kind of stuff. Optimizing queries. Again, you know, you build something, it, it works. It's just, it's there. It's, it's doing its thing. Nobody's complained that the endpoint's slow, but... When you run it, you notice that there's like, you know, 70 M plus one queries. So you go, you know, you go touch that up a little bit. I feel like a lot of people and a lot of programmers just don't want to do that work, or it may not even be that they don't want to do that work. It's just a lot of times there's maybe no time for it. So that's that's no fault of anyone in particular. But I, I think we need to, you know, figure out a way to make some more of these things Fun. Maybe more teams need to build in like gem upgrade day or something, and you know, like go upgrade the ones that are hard to upgrade. Upgrade the ones that Dependabot can't, that have breaking changes. Or I don't, I don't know. There, there's got to be some way where we can make some more of this like the task that keep the car running more enjoyable, right?
0: Debugging errors can be a developer's worst nightmare, but it doesn't have to be. Airbrake is an award-winning error monitoring, performance, and deployment tracking tool created by developers for developers that can actually help cut your debugging time in half. So why do developers love Airbrake? It has all of the information that web developers need to monitor their application, including error management, performance insights, and deploy tracking. Airbrake's debugging tool catches all of your project errors, intelligently groups them, and points you to issues in the code so you can quickly fix the bug before customers are impacted. In addition to stellar error monitoring, Airbrake's lightweight APM helps developers track the performance and availability of their application through metrics like HTTP requests, response times, error occurrences, and user satisfaction. Finally, Airbrake deploy tracking helps developers track trends, fix bad deploys, and improve code quality. Since 2008, Airbrake has been a staple in the Ruby community and has grown to cover all major programming languages. Airbrake seamlessly integrates with your favorite apps to include modern features like single sign-on and SDK-based installation. From testing to production, Airbrake notifiers have your back. Your time is valuable. So why waste it combing through logs, waiting for user reports, or retrofitting other tools to monitor your application? You literally have nothing to lose. Head on over to airbrake.io slash bike shed to create your free developer account today. Would it be fair to describe the types of work that you've been talking about here? You've been describing as the boring parts of development. Would it be fair to put those under the heading of maintenance?
1: I think it would be fair to put it under maintenance. Maybe even relating that back to cars, it's the same thing, right? Like you can put a new paint job on the car and you can get some new shiny wheels and you can, you know, put a turbocharger on it or something, but eventually, you know, you got to change the oil, you got to change the tires, maybe change the air filter, new windshield wipers, you know, so you can see when it's raining. These things are all just things that need to be done. Otherwise, even no matter how shiny your car is, it's just not going to go anymore, right? So I, I feel like maybe most of these tasks are maintenance. It's not the shiny new thing. It's just keeping the thing running.
0: And I guess traditionally at ThoughtBot, we've done engagements where we're either building new software or new features on existing software, or we might be coming in and fixing some like larger problems, maybe doing something like helping with a Rails upgrade or helping to backfill a test suite, some like larger kind of chronic problems. But we recently introduced a maintenance service that is, instead of having people full-time there to do a particular task, it's more of uh, so many hours a month to just do a lot of those boring things where we're doing, like you said, potentially gem upgrades or fixing bugs or things like that. Is that a team that you would be interested in joining?
1: So I actually got to work with uh, Janine and Fur on support and maintenance for about a month, month and a half, maybe. I worked on an upgrade and that's exactly what I did. Uh, it was uh, upgrading a Rails 5.2 app to Rails 7. And yeah, it was not only super fun, but the other fun side of that for me is that a lot of times when I'm doing these things and you find breaking changes, the gem's either like 10 years old and it can't be upgraded because there's nobody maintaining it anymore. So you maybe have to create a fork or you maybe submit a patch or something. So this is a way that I've been able to get, you know, my feet wet in open source without really contributing to a specific open source project. So I have tons of little commits on different gems here and there, fixing stuff up or something I found along the way that couldn't be upgraded or something like that. So so yeah, um, the support and maintenance team is definitely something that I'm interested in and I had a good time working with them for that rotation.
0: I think it's really interesting you're talking about the pattern of open source contributions that you were having. And I think that's something that's really valuable to the community, just those little patches in various places because... It's broken or is no longer compatible with other things. What you're doing not only helps unblock you and your client, but also is probably unblocking a lot of other people in the community. So might have a larger impact towards other people than if you were putting all of your time into contributing to one more well-known gem.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, I I know for sure, like some of them, I have a commit on Honey Badger, something that broke recently, a sidekick upgrade that broke, and there was just a small change to the way the error handling worked. And it was like causing like, all just this flood of errors. And it was just a simple change. But I'm sure not only did it fix it for us and the app I was working on, but yeah, I'm sure quite a few people benefited from that one.
0: So for those listeners out there who are hearing you talk about some of this maintenance or boring work and maybe you're feeling inspired to go and do that on their team. How would you recommend getting into that?
1: Well, I mentioned Dependabot. If your team's already using something like Dependabot for like minor gem upgrades, maybe there's a PR that's stuck that Dependabot can't upgrade because there's some breaking changes in one of the gems it's trying to upgrade. That's a great place to start. You could run, I believe it's Bundle Outdated, And that will tell you what gems are in your gem file that are outdated and need to be updated. So any of them that are going to be major version bumps, you know, going from like two to three, typically you'll usually have breaking changes somewhere you can kind of jump in and go fix those breaking changes. Maybe there's even breaking changes in another gem that may be related or something that you're trying to upgrade, and you know you can't upgrade past version two because the new gem you're trying to upgrade it depends on that gem on a specific version or something like that. So uh, I feel like that's a great way you could jump in. Maybe some other ways would be if you you know maybe want to optimize some queries or something like that. Maybe you have Sentry or some other type of software that reports on these things. New Relic, you know something like that, you could go dive into and pick up an endpoint that's responding slow or something that has some N plus ones being reported and go dive in, see if you can uh, maybe touch those up.
0: Those are all great suggestions. I know I once worked with a developer who would dedicate, I think it was the first hour of his day. So he'd come into work in the morning and before jumping in on feature work, the first hour of his day, he would just do small improvements on things. And not just like refactoring for the sake of refactoring, but they're things like you're describing, like, oh, do we have a gem that needs to handle an update? Did one of our monitoring services highlight maybe some slow queries that I could tweak a little bit this morning? Or uh, are there areas where we're feeling pain that we could make things better? And just by doing a little bit every day, he like became known as the person on the team who was like, having an impact And making everybody's lives better and making the code base better, making the product better. And I I really appreciated this person.
1: Yeah, sounds like an angel. Like I was saying, you know, I kind of hinted at a little bit before. I think these things, and it could be because they're boring, or it could just be because you have stakeholders that are like, hey, we need to get this new feature out. And I just feel like a lot of this stuff definitely Gets pushed to the back burner often. So figuring out a way to incorporate some stuff into your day like that or automating some of it, you know, using things like the penda bot and stuff like that. I think they're all just great ways to keep the app or the project in good shape. Uh, another thing that I've done: adding custom Rubocop rules to enforce things the way that you want them. You know, so, like, comes with a standard set of rules, but you find some pattern that's being, you know, repeated, and we don't want that pattern repeated. You know, spend the time to write a Rubocop rule so that that pattern doesn't get repeated, and you don't have to constantly police this in, in PRs. You know, you let the automated tool do it for you. But I've never really heard anybody get super excited about writing a Rubocop rule.
0: But they're valuable.
1: Yeah, they're definitely valuable.
0: I think the most excited I've seen people get about RuboCop rules is typically as part of an incident report. So something went terribly wrong and maybe production went down and then you're doing a post mortem, and then you realize, oh, in this way, some bad code made it through. And you decide, how can we prevent this from happening again? And the consensus is, oh, maybe a RuboCop rule would have prevented this. So I think that's generally where people actually start caring about a RuboCop rule Uh, as after there's been some larger
1: incident? Sure. We had something where I think like we first started using system specs on an app I was working on and some people were using Path Helper and some people were using URL Helper. And for some reason, the ones that were using Path Helper would fail randomly. I don't really recall right off the top of my head why, but we wrote a RuboCop rule to just enforce using the URL for or the URL helper instead of the path helper, just to enforce that rule so we didn't have to constantly police it. You know, and it just made everybody's lives easier. Figuring out a way to set some time aside for this stuff or automating this stuff is definitely beneficial because you may not always have somebody on the team that's interested or that wants to champion this stuff.
0: Hey, you mentioned the word champion, and I, I, I like that word because it's the kind of thing that often doesn't get prioritized. And so you need somebody to advocate for that work getting done. And generally, I've found this work is often cheaper to do sooner rather than later if you postpone it too long. And now it's been 10 years and you've not done a Rails upgrade and your app is still running on Rails 3. It's going to be very expensive to do that work.
1: Yeah. The biggest cost of software is maintenance is definitely true.
0: Maintenance is valuable work and we should celebrate it more. For sure. On that note, shall we wrap up? I think so. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Where can people find you online?
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter or on GitHub. Both are Daniel Nolan.
0: All right. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm.
0: This show has been produced and edited by Mandy Moore.
1: If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show.
0: If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at underscore Bike Shed, or you can reach me at joel Ken
1: on Twitter. Or reach both of us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. This podcast
1: is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at ThoughtBot.com.